0: I want to start off today um, and tell you about uh, another job that I had before this one. I was a school teacher. And when I was a school teacher in Texas, we had evaluations that the principal or vice principal would do with us yearly. We had two scheduled evaluations, and in one evaluation, they would just pop in and watch us teach. Well, on the scheduled evaluations, we obviously wanted to do our very best, Right. And so we would schedule those, at least I would, I can't speak for every teacher, I would schedule those during my very best subject. When I had a lesson that was going to pull all the punches out, every like, educational secret that I knew, I would plan that one. Well, on one in particular, the, the principal had told me she would be coming in in a couple of weeks to evaluate me, and so we scheduled the time. And, and I don't know if I was just hit with this, 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 ch- the, the, this, this, if I was spurred on with creativity or what, but I was like, I've got the lesson that I want to do. And it used literally every educational tool I had been taught. And it was a reading lesson, and it was a writing lesson compared with it. And, and, and in many ways, uh, it, was, it was a sucker punch, right, to the principal, because I wanted to do this book called The Memory Box, now, if you're, if you're not familiar with uh, children's literature, let me tell you about this book called The Memory Box. Um, it is a book written about a grandfather who gets diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and Alzheimer's is a disease uh, where people lose their memory. And so what this grandfather would do is he would take and he would write down his memories uh, and put them in this memory box. So that way, when he forgot them, his grandson could read them back to him. Very sweet. Well, the climax of this story happens when um, the grandfather is in the backyard and he's lost, in his own backyard. And the grandson goes to look for him and finds him behind the shed crying because he doesn't know where he is. And so the, the, the grandson doesn't know what to do except to go get the memory box. And he sits down beside his grandfather and he reads these stories that his grandfather wrote. And his grandfather is listening to them as if it was the first time that he's ever heard them before. And the students are doing exactly what you're doing as I read the story. They're enthralled with every word. And it's this beautifully illustrated book. And I look back as I'm reading it and the principal is in tears at the end of it. And I knew I'm like, okay. Okay. I, got, I, I did good on my evaluation. The way, the way our evaluations were, there were 10 uh, essential qualities that we were measured against. And the more of those essential qualities that we hit in a lesson, the higher our score was. And there were 10 EQs. And I was like, I've got 10 EQs. Particularly because when I had the kids do the writing assignment, she sat down at a table and did it too. Right, like she was fully in. And so, so I left that, went to, went to her office to, to, to do it, and sure enough, I got all 10 Qs. It was the highest evaluation I ever got in my entire career uh, of teaching. And here's why. See, I was able to craft a very specific outcome. I knew I wanted 10 EQs. I knew what it would take to get them, and I put everything into that one hour of teaching. Now, the rest of the day, I wasn't that good of a teacher. Right? But for that time, I knew exactly what it would take to, to get to be successful. Right? I, I, I checked all the, all, the do, all, the, all the boxes, but here's the deal with success like that. Right? Success like that is temporary, always temporary. Right? Because this wasn't the teacher that I always was, it was just the teacher that I wanted to be seen as. And, and here's, why, here's why I share this, because I could pull this off for a short time. Now, don't we all do this to some degree, right? We, we have environments where we want to be seen as something. We have this image of ourselves that we want to portray, and we can craft the environment to where that is seen. For example, some of you want to be the straight-A student, right? And so you work really hard at getting all the grades and getting all the A's, And if you get a B, you do all the extra credit you can to get that back up to A. Some of you want to be the star athlete. And so you put hours and hours and hours into practice so that during that game time, during that environment, you can be the star. Some of you want to be the executive level professional. You want that corner office. Well, or the corner spot in your living room these days, right? And so you'll do everything you can to to, to get there. Some of you want to be the, the, the perfect parent. And you see this on Instagram and Facebook, you post the stuff that makes you look like the perfect parent because that's the environment you can craft. Some of you want to be seen as the excellent cook and so, so you, you try all these new recipes and if it's a failure, you, you don't tell anybody about it, right? Maybe even some of us just want to be seen as the good Christian. And so church is our environment that we can craft to make it look like a, a success, Right? That we come into places like this, and, and we look good, and we, and we act good, but, but the kids know on the way to church there was a screaming match in the car, right? Because we all have these environments where we can be successful for just a little bit. For a short while, we can produce an environment where everybody sees us exactly the way we want to be seen. You see, success is temporary when it's our idea of success, but when it's God's idea of success, it can be permanent. And here's what we're going we're to look at today, and really for the next three weeks, we're going to look at how does God want us to experience success, right? How does God want us to experience success? In Nehemiah, we're going to see see different paths to this success, right? That it's not about creating a perfect environment where everyone will see how good I am or how perfect I am and and, and all of that or how good and how perfect you are. Instead, what we're going to see is just the opposite. So go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, as you're turning there, I, I want to tell you a little bit about Nehemiah. And I want to tell you why we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah together in this series called Rebuilders. And not just looking at one or the other. Because Nehemiah is actually a continuation of the book of Ezra. As a matter of fact, it used to be, in ancient times, these two books were called Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. Right? It wasn't called Ezra and Nehemiah because it's such a continuation. And, and, and most, people, most scholars believe that Ezra is the one who, who penned these words. And what we're going to see today in Nehemiah chapter 1 is it picks up where Ezra left off. Now last week we ended the book of Ezra and we saw that, that, that God works when we realize that there is a work that only he can do. In other words, if you remember, we talked about knowing where we stop and God starts. That's what we see in Ezra. He knew he, knew he needed God to, to, to get the work started again. He knew he needed God to finish rebuilding the temple. And in him we learned about humility and how our humility... Knowing where we stop and God starts, our humility allows us to see God do the work that only he can do. It allows us to not take the credit for it, but to see God do it. Well, today I'm going to introduce you to Nehemiah, right? And what we're going to see in Nehemiah is that he is an excellent leader. He is decisive. He is bold. He has a plan. Like if you want somebody leading an organization or you want somebody leading a movement, you want this guy. Which is why a lot of leadership series start with Nehemiah. But here's the deal. I think Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Because there's an order to be followed, and I think it's an order as, as rebuilders, as people who ask the question, what is God stirring in us? It's an order that, that can't get lost on us, because Ezra rebuilt the temple, and Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. Ezra represents this spiritual part of rebuilding, and Nehemiah represents this physical part of rebuilding, right? In Nehemiah, a wall is rebuilt, and Ezra, a temple is rebuilt, and as rebuilders, As rebuilders, we rebuild the spiritual and the physical, right? We do both. In Ezra, the focus with the question of what is God stirring in you really uh, deals with this, this vertical relationship between you and God. In Nehemiah, what we're going to see is this question is, what is God stirring in you moves from this vertical relationship to a horizontal relationship? What is God doing around you as you, as you interact and, and lead with people? And here's the deal. One is spiritual, Ezra. One is physical, Nehemiah, but both are holy. Both are godly. And we need both of them. So let's begin looking at Nehemiah and see this, this first look about what we need to experience godly success. Look at verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hikaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth month of the year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Okay, so, so here's, here's what I want to stop here. I just want to give a time frame. From the ending of Ezra to, to now, there's been a 13-year time gap. Right, and so so it's 13 years later. We know very little about Nehemiah right now, but we're gonna see and we're gonna discover more. But before we find out who Nehemiah is, we're gonna see that he has a problem that he's facing. A problem that's right in front of him. Look at verse 2. It says that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain man from certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So, so here's the, the problem that Nehemiah hears about. Somebody comes back from, from Jerusalem. He's in, in Babylon still. And, and, and he hears that there are people in Jerusalem. He knows that because of, of people have left to go there to rebuild And he hears that they are in danger. That's that's the first problem, that the people are in great danger. And why are they in great danger? Because the wall that surrounds the city has been torn down and has been burned. And here's here's why that's important. In ancient cities, uh, people would build walls around the city for protection, right? Because uh, a, a good wall around the city was 24 hours of protection seven days a week. Right? You had guards sitting on top, but if you didn't have a wall, the enemy could come in and attack at any given time. Think about the Great Wall of China. Right? That's a wall that is designed to protect a nation. And it's a big wall, right? You can see that one from space. This one, not so big, not that big, but 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 you could you could that but it's the same purpose. It's to protect the people inside and to keep those outside that don't need to be inside. Well, when Babylon attacked Jerusalem, they tore down that wall and they burned the gates. The, the, the gates were made out of wood, and so they burned them. So, so this city, anybody can come in now and, and attack the city. Anybody can come in and take over. They've got this temple that's built, and that's great. But the people that are living there still aren't safe. And so Nehemiah feels this, and he wants to do something about it. You see, for over 100 years now, this wall has been in ruins. And this city has been open for attack, and, and for Nehemiah... We're going to see the first step to godly success is how you deal with the problems that God puts in front of you. Right? How do you deal with the problems that God puts in front of you? Now, I'm going to go off my my script here in just a little bit because I'm just going to say a lot of our time is spent worrying about problems that God hasn't put in front of us. Right? We spend a lot of time worrying about things that aren't ours to worry about. And as people, that is wasted time and that is wasted energy. Nehemiah focused on the problems that God put in front of him to deal with. The problems, the problems that he could answer. And what we'll see is that those problems that God puts in front of us, they, they, they always have two paths in front of you. You can do one which guarantees temporary success. And that is create an environment where you look like a success. And that success will be fleeting at best. The other, and that's a temporary one, the other one is a permanent solution. And it's one that, that, that God orchestrates. It's one that you experience what, what we're calling godly success. Because look at what Nehemiah does here in verse 4. Verse 4 says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. You see, what Nehemiah does here is he stops. Now, remember last week we talked about humility as knowing where where you stop and God starts. Nehemiah realized there is a problem in front of him that God has to deal with. It's put in front of me, but it is a God-sized problem. And you see, we saw Ezra last week do the same thing when he was faced with a problem. He stopped in humility and he prayed. And for Nehemiah, he responds the same way that Ezra did. A lot of people think that Nehemiah and Ezra were buddies, right? Which is why you see a lot of similarities. They, they, they encouraged each other, they supported each other, they, 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 they worshipped God together and they knew each other. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah respond, responding both this same way, it gives us this key to godly success. That, that the, one na- the one way we can know that we're choosing a more permanent path of godly success is humility. And that humility leads us to prayer. Right? Because godly success starts with prayer. Like those things that I talked about. I'll get to those in a minute. Those things that we talked about. All right, those things that we worry about, those things that, that we waste our time and energy, that problems aren't put in front of us. What would, be, what would happen, y'all? What would happen if, if those problems that are put in front of us, we took those to God in prayer instead of spending this energy worrying about them? You see, godly success starts with prayer. And let's look at Nehemiah's prayer because I believe what we'll see is a pattern for our prayers as well. Let's look and see how Nehemiah prays. In verse 5, he says this, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant in steadfast love with those uh, who love him and keep his commandments. So the first thing we see Nehemiah do is adore God, is a way to think about it. Now, adore uh, is this word that simply means to look at something and feel the love. Right? My wife used to be a baby photographer. And I tell you what, it's hard to find a picture of a baby that you don't feel the love, right? They are just cute and adorable, and you look at a picture of a baby, and you go, oh, right? And this happens on social media, right? We, we have these teenagers, right? We have these older kids, and they can be driving us nuts. And we look on Facebook, and we see a picture from, from five or six years ago they their babies, and all of a sudden we go, oh, They're so cute and they're so adorable, right? Because we feel the love. That's what adore means. Adore means to feel the love. Right? Adore means to look at something or someone and feel love. Well, this is this first aspect of prayer. What, What Nehemiah does is he looks at God and feels the love. Right? You look at God and you feel the love. And actually, the word adore... In Latin is adoro, and it means prayer. This idea of of adore and looking at someone to feel the love and prayer go together. You can't separate them. That's kind of what prayer is. Prayer is an adoration of God, right? Prayer is this adoration of God. It's to look at God and feel the love. Now, one of the things we say here at Fellowship, because let's be honest, we're all in church and we know that God loves us, right? We hear that, we hear that, we hear that. One of the things we say here just to bring this home is is we have to understand that not only does God love us, God likes us. Not only does God love you, God likes you. And when you look at God and you pray, you feel not only the love, but you feel the love of someone who likes you. Not someone who's disgusted with you, someone who's disappointed in you, someone who hates you. You feel the love of someone who likes you. You see, adoration is is looking at God to see and feel the love and y'all I'm going to tell you in, in our world and in our society that takes some time doesn't it you have to kind of stop and breathe right when you pray you stop and you breathe and you remember that that, that, that your attention and your focus and, and your gaze is on a God who loves you and a God who likes you, and it's okay to sit in that moment and feel that moment, to stop and be present and not be, wa- and not be, not be rushed out of it, but to feel that love. But prayer doesn't stop there. Look at, look at what else happens. Look at what that produces when you feel that kind of love. Look at what verse 6 does with Nehemiah. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I in my father's house. Have sin. Now remember last week we talked about how confession is seeing sin as God sees it, right? That confession is acknowledging the wrong that you do, the things that God wants you to do and you don't, or the things that God doesn't want you to do and you do, that that is sin. It's not some beautiful mistake, right? It is sin, and it's acknowledging that sin. And when we adore God and we see all that, that He is and the love that He is, it's very natural for us to look at ourselves and, and, and see all that we're not, Right? When we see God as holy and perfect, we realize, yeah, that's not me. That's not me. When we see God for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. And when we adore God, it leads us to this next thing that prayer is adoration to God, but prayer is also confession to God. Right? One of my favorite movies is Rudy. Anybody like Rudy? Ah, it's this great movie of this... This, this unlikely hero that, because, that finally gets to play for Notre Dame in one game, one play, and, and it's this, this big crescendo moment. and As he's on his path to the hero's journey, there's, there's one thing that this priest that, that's kind of his counselor says to him. that I just, It's my favorite line from the movie. And this priest looks at him as Rudy has been praying and praying and praying, and he says, why isn't this happening? And this priest looks at him and goes, there's two things that I know. There is a God, and I'm not him. Right? Confession is realizing there is a God, and I'm not him. You see, let's look at Nehemiah. Let's look at the sin that he's confessing and how he confesses it. In verse 7, we... We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statues, and the rules that you command your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, You are unfaithful, or if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen and make my name dwell there. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your great strong hand. And so, so look at what Nehemiah is confessing. He's confessing the unfaithfulness of the nation. He's not just saying, hey, I've sinned. He's saying we have sinned. As the nation of Israel, we have sinned. And just like Ezra did the same thing, that this current sin, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> It's connected to previous sin. Remember, I talked about the illustration of the faucet. You turn the faucet off to clean up the mess. You don't just clean up the mess. And this is what Ezra is doing. He's saying, this nation's sin led us to be taken over by Babylon. And this nation coming back to faithfulness will lead us putting you back on the throne where you are because this confession also has this promise with it. This confession of, of, of our wrongdoing has this promise of God that God wants to bring them back. God wants them to be in the nation that he has set aside for them. He wants his people to be a faithful people. That's his desire. And he will restore what they've broken. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament, sometimes the Old Testament shouts the gospel. And sometimes it whispers the gospel. Isaiah shouts the gospel many times. This is one of those whispers of the gospel. Because what you see when you read the Old Testament is you see that Israel keeps being an unfaithful nation. To a faithful God. And you see God stick with them time and time again because eventually this nation won't be exiled from the nation of Israel. This nation will have an oppressor come and rule over them in their homeland. It won't be Babylon, it'll be Rome. Right? And because of the nation's unfaithfulness, uh, it, it, Rome will be over them. And so they will be in oppression and slavery again. But this time, it's in their homeland. It's in their own backyard. And in that setting, in that environment, Jesus will send his son. Jesus will send the Messiah. And that he will be the one to lead them out. Now, now, now there will be confusion about Jesus because some people will think that, that he will lead them out to conquer Rome. But Jesus offers something so much better. He will offer them a kingdom with a mansion, with many rooms. He will offer them a place, right? Right? He will offer them this this place, this this mansion, and Nehemiah has a glimpse of this. He has a glimpse of of this coming Messiah, this this mansion with with many rooms. And and, and what we see in the gospel is that Jesus is the only one who can bring you back to God's house, right? Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. And In Nehemiah, we have this whisper of a promise of of a Savior that will be coming, but but we know his name, don't we? And we know his name is Jesus, and we know that he came preaching and teaching that that the way of God is in following him and being faithful to him. You see, saying yes to Jesus is saying yes to all of these promises of God. And what I love about Jesus is he does this even in the middle of your sin. You know what's interesting? In in Genesis, uh, the very beginning of the Bible, we have creation, right? And we have Adam and Eve put in this creation, and then, and then they sin. And you know what happens after they sin? God shows up. Do you know, in the garden, when God shows up, that is the first time in the scriptures that we see God in the garden that he created was after Adam and Eve sinned. Now, it's really easy to read Genesis and think that is a story about our sin. I think it is a story about God sticking with us and God showing up even in the midst of our sin. That he is not afraid of it. He is not powerless in spite of it. He shows up right in the middle of it. And that is our Jesus. He showed up right in the middle of an unfaithful nation being occupied by this foreign country to tell them about a better kingdom, the kingdom of God. And when you say yes, you get access to that kingdom. And can I tell you what else this this other path looks like, this path of permanent success? In these verses, Nehemiah quotes or paraphrases seven different verses from the book of Deuteronomy. Nehemiah knows his Bible. Nehemiah was a man of God's word and his blueprints were God's word. To him, prayer wasn't about telling God what to do. It was a declaration of what God had already said. That's what prayer was. It was this adoration, and it was this confession, and that confession was based in the Word of God. And in the midst of that was this reminder of God's promise from the Word of God. You see, Nehemiah is fully relying on God's Word. Can I give you a picture of what this looks like? I've heard this story. I'm not a pilot. I don't know if it's true, but for those of you who are pilots, you can let me know if it's true or not. That doesn't mean I probably won't still use this illustration, because it's a really good illustration. But what... (laughs) I've heard pilots have to do, as part of their training, is they have to get into a cockpit where all the windows are blacked out. And they have to fly from one part of the United States to another part of the United States using only the instruments in front of them on the panel. And here's why they have to do that. They have to learn how to fly by the instruments because one day they're going to be in a plane and they're going to be flying through a storm and there are going to be clouds all around them and they're not going to be able to see an inch outside the window. And they have to know what it means to navigate a plane with people on it when you can't see where you're going. They have to know what it means to fly by the instruments. This is what Nehemiah is doing. The instruments panel in front of him is God's word. And he can't see beyond the window, but he knows what God's word says. And he is flying by the instruments. Now, some of you right now in life, you are also flying by the instrument panel, right? You can't see what's in front of you. But you know you have a God who loves you and you know that you have a God who likes you. And so you just keep waking up tomorrow and taking the next step trusting in God that is flying by the instrument panel see God's word is our instrument panel and prayer sometimes is telling God back his word because it has this promise in it so not only is it adoration and confession it is telling God his word now we get to the final part of this prayer because Nehemiah needs to tell God what he needs. So it's not only telling God's word, it's also telling what you need. Look at verse 11. It says, And Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So in humility, Nehemiah knows where he stops and God starts and he knows he needs favor from a king. Right? He needs favor. He needs success in front of one man. Well, let's look and see who that man is, right? I just told you. He says, now I was a cut bearer to the king, right? So Nehemiah knows there is this one guy that can make what I need to happen happen, and it is this king. Nehemiah, we find out, is a cupbearer to that king. Now, what we know about cupbearers in this time is that it was actually a very trusted and honorable role because what a cupbearer would do is they were the ones that would bring the food to the king and they would sample it to make sure no one had poisoned it. So the benefit of this job is you get to eat food from the king's table. The disadvantage of this job is, guess what? You could die, right? Right? Because if somebody poisoned the king's food, you're the first one to know. If the cupbearer drops dead, the king doesn't eat his lunch, right? But this role is also a very important role because oftentimes the cupbearer to the king and the king were the only two people in the room. It was that trusted, was that, that high of a position, that trusted of a position. And so that's why Nehemiah knew that he had this, this, this relationship with the king, and he also knew Hisself, Nehemiah is one of these guys that we're going to see that he wore his emotions on his sleeve. Like we're going to see in the next chapter, the king's going to look at him and say, hey man, what's wrong? Why are you troubled? And he knows that the king's going to ask him that, and he knows he's got to give an answer. Because for the king's point of view, if your cupbearer looks sick, you got to find out why. Right? And Nehemiah knows that he looks disheveled. He's heard this bad news, and he's not his chipper self. And the king's going to ask why. But he knew he needed God to give him success because we're going to see next week that Nehemiah is honest in his assessment. And so what Nehemiah shows us is he shows us this godly form of surrender, right? That it is, it is to adore, it is to confess, and it is to tell. You tell God his word, you tell God what you need. Now, not to be cheesy, because sometimes we think prayer isn't enough. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Sometimes we think prayer is not enough, right? But not to be cheesy, but, but look at this. Prayer is action, right? Adore, confess, tell. Okay, so it may be a little cheesy. But but maybe you'll remember it, right? Like, like prayer is action. Because we think, like anybody ever think that, well, I guess I'll just pray. And that's not enough. No, it is enough. It is a great first step of action. Because you see, for Nehemiah, who in the face of this problem, that he needed this permanent path to success, not a a temporary one. He needed a path of humility and prayer. And for Nehemiah, success isn't determined by what you do. Success is determined by who you surrender to. Right? Success isn't determined by by what you do. Success is determined by by who you surrender to. And for Nehemiah and for us, we see that godly success needs godly surrender. Right? Godly success needs godly surrender. This is why our addition to the stage this week is the things that fell, knee pads, right? Because as rebuilders, we need knee pads because knee pads uh, represent us being on our knees and being on our knees is a, is a great position for prayer. And so for, for Nehemiah, you know, being on his knees was a symbol of prayer, and it was a symbol of, of surrender, and it is for us too. And so in Nehemiah, we see that the one that we surrender to is actually the one who defines our success that the one we surrender to is the one who defines our success. In my teaching evaluation, I knew who would define my success, and it was the principal sitting in there, right? In life, you may not have a principal, but you always have God to surrender to. Now, there was another one that I said, another evaluation, that was the pop-in evaluation, right? In that evaluation, I didn't get to set up the scenario for my success. She got to see the real Fred. I never got 10 EQs on that one. Right, for us, the question as we as we finish up this sermon is: Who determines your success? Who determines your success? Really, who determines your success? Is it a boss? They determine an amount of it. They determine a temporary part of it. Is it a principal? They determine part of it. Or is it God? Church, I think God is the one who determines our success. And so, church, what if we did something different this week? How about, how about this? Instead of you trying to define your success, instead of us trying to define our own success, what if, what if we let God define our success this week? And, and how about we enjoy this, this process of godly success being about godly surrender, and we take this, this prayer of action, of adoration, confession, and thanksgiving, right? We, we take this step when something hits you this week, and y'all... Something will hit you this week, right? What are you going to do? What if that thing hits you this week, whether it's big or whether it's small? What if we just stop and pray and see God for who he is, even if only for a moment, as a God who likes us? We realize we're not perfect, and we're not holy, and we confess, and then we tell God back his promises to remind us of them, and then we tell God what we need with this problem. What if, what if, what if we do that? Let's see if that makes any difference, and y'all listen. Here's what I'd love to do, whether you're, whether you're at home or whether you're, you're, you're with us in person. Let me know, right? Email me, fred at fellowshipashville.com. What, what hit you this week, and what was your prayer like? in the midst of it. I would love to be encouraged by that. I would love to encourage you in that process. Okay, let's pray. Jesus, you are the God who controls everything. Even when it looks out of control, you are in control. And because of that, Father, we we surrender to you and we ask you to move us and shape us and guide us. We ask you to to be the, the, the God over us, not ourselves. And God, I ask for us as a congregation that that changes us. I ask that that changes us to walk in more faith and more trust and more humility. And because of that, that there is this surrendered prayer that we keep lifting up to you throughout the week. And God, may you get the glory for.